Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode five. If you could hide to Colob podcast, we're so excited to be going through episode five, and we're grateful for everyone who's joining us today. My name is Daniel, and this is my brother Clive. Hello, yeah, uh, welcome to this great episode. There's so much to go through today. I can't wait to get into it. You're right, there is loads to get through, so I might just get straight into the quote, if you don't mind. Definitely. This is taken, actually, I didn't go with the General Conference or anything like that this time. I've gone with Doctrine and Covenants 88, verse 117 and verse 118. Therefore, verily, I say unto you, my friends, call your solemn assembly as I have commanded you. And as all have not faith, Seek ye diligently, and teach one another words of wisdom. Yea, seek ye out the best books, words of wisdom, seek learning, even by study and also by faith. I really like that because it's asking us all to come together and learn. Not just learn from anywhere, but actually seek out the best writings and learn from them. And maybe they don't even need to be religious they just need to be searched out at by faith and in the end right we have to learn this stuff anyway in this life we don't have to just having a testimony and following the covenant path is absolutely enough but when we get to heaven we're still going to have to learn it so we might as well learn it now that's right yeah learn it now move on quicker progress faster in the heavens well we are doing first nephi chapter 16 to chapter 22 today i don't think we're going to get through all of it there'll be plenty to go through i think that's perfect i think we just get into it okay let me just set the scene nephi is talking to his brethren so and it came to pass that i said unto them so he says to them i know i've given you hard things because the wicked take these things as hard so he's calling them out in a really really bold way and he does this according to the truth that the righteous have i justified and testified that they should be lifted up at the last day. And this is the big clangor here from Nephi. Wherefore, the guilty taketh the truth to be hard, for it cutteth them to the very center. What were your thoughts on that? I mean, where it says guilty taketh the truth to be hard. If you're reading that going, oh no, (laughs) you're not in for a good ride for the rest of it. You look at today's world. That's what I was thinking. Does that mean that they, are you instantly trying to find reasons why you shouldn't feel so bad or you're not, not, you're not actually that guilty if when, when you're feeling extra guilty? There's a couple of couple of ways that this can be played. In my mind, I feel like there'll come a point in the future. Everyone might be sinless in their own mind because there's a reason why I did something wrong because I was just so tired. Oh, that's okay. You, you were tired. Don't worry about it. I punched someone. Oh, but I was super frustrated. Oh, that's okay. Don't be frustrated here. You know, have a sit down. It's okay. You know, it's almost like there's good reasons. There's alleged good reasons now for loads of bad things that that happened i'm not talking about any specific sin or any specific bad thing i just feel like there might come a time in the future where something i think we're we're we're, as a modern civilization we're we're crossing a line or we might cross a line in the future once you've decided that you're okay with it it's so easy to justify why it's okay right what about for it cutteth them to the very center is that when we're believers like i have a firm testimony And if I was going to do something really wrong, it would cut me to the very, very core of my soul that this God that I believe in, I've now absolutely done a 180 and I've done something so horrendously wrong. And that that 
hurts me at my core. Is that the case with who Nephi's talking to, though? Or is he talking to people who don't care about the gospel? Well, you look at um, things that you talked about a couple of episodes ago, where sometimes we are Lemuel and Lemuel, we're very up and down. And we'll, we'll see that over the next coming chapters and verses, where Laman Lemuel and the other uh, sons and daughters of Ishmael, they are wicked, right. and then they're really, really guilty and feel really, really bad for what they've done. But then they justify it again, they're wicked again. Mm. And I think that's, yeah, the sort of thing that it's going to always happen through the scriptures, and it's always going to happen through our modern day as well. Well, Nephi kind of ends the talk... He says, And it came to pass that I, Nephi, did exhort my brethren with all my diligence to keep the commandments of the Lord. And it came to pass that they did humble themselves before the Lord, insomuch that I had joy and great hopes, he says. And don't forget, he has just come off the mountain, and he's seeing the future as well. So he's still really in this phase, and you talked about it last week, actually. He's still in this phase where he doesn't want them to become wicked and see the things that he's seen. And he's trying to alter the course, I guess, as best as he can, and try to get his brethren to be as humble as he as he possibly can, which is what he which is what he says here. And then we yeah. then we switch into so he has this speech. He says that I I Nephi took one of the daughters of Ishmael to wife, and also my brethren took of the daughters of Ishmael, and also Zoram as well. He says, as an update, we've all got married. And it's the very next verse that I like that kind of surmises or gives an update on where they're at. So this is verse 8. So Nephi says, Thus my father had fulfilled all the commandments of the Lord. What are the commandments? There's three things that Lehi is commanded to do. One, leave Jerusalem. Well, they've done that. They're in the Valley of Lemuel. Second thing, they need to get the plates. And the third thing, and to me, is obvious now that they needed to enter into marriage because he says we entered into marriage. And the next thing he says is now everything that my father was asked was done. So do you think possibly Lehi was given sort of a list from God saying, all right, take your family and leave. Then I need you to go back, get the plates. Then when you've got them, I need you to go back, get Ishmael and his family. Then I need you to get your sons married. And then, and only then are you going to be prepared to then go into the promised land. Do you think that's sort of the idea? And then he's got, all right, now we've completed all the things that we've been told. Now we can get into the promised land. Do you think that's sort of the idea? I think I, I, I think so, yes. I think that Lehi has this vision and he's been tasked with stuff to do. Exactly, because the next very next verse, he says, the voice of the Lord spoke unto my father and said, tomorrow you'll take your family and you'll journey into the wilderness. Right, so they're done now. So, they're at the Valley of Lemuel. They've completed the three things, and now they're ready to level up and head out. An interesting thing happens the next day. Lehi wakes up. He sees this ball of curious workmanship, which we now know as the Leahona. Why is he given the Leahona? Is it because, you know, we've talked about how he's this traveler. He knows the area. Could he have been given it because now he doesn't know the way? It's something that he's got to, all right, you don't know the way. I'm going to lead you to the way because, you know, from here on out, You've just got to go by faith. Right. Um, and I, I think I think what you've just summarized is totally correct. Lehi and co. got to the Valley of Lemuel, no stress, under their own steam. So maybe that was just the border of what Lehi's knowledge was. Possibly. Well, let's talk about the Lehona. So first of all, we don't actually find out the name of the Lehona for another 500 years in the scriptures because it's not until Alma 
reveals that the name that his ancestors called this ball of curious workmanship actually the Liahona. Right. So everything that we're going to read so far, it's just this ball of curious workmanship that has spindles on it that point in the direction that we need to go. That's interesting. I'd actually, actually never thought about that before. Yeah, you're right. It's not called the Liahona at this very point in time. The Liahona, so what is it? It's a ball of curious workmanship. It's got two spindles, right? So one of them is to point the way that they need to go, and then it's got another one. Right. What's the other one? What? what? So they've got one that's pointing the way to go, and what could the other spindle possibly be? Well, in a few, I've, I've read a, a couple of different articles, but the best one that rests the easiest in my mind, one could have pointed to north, true north, like a compass, because if it's pointing to north, the other one is has got something to go off. Because later they say they went eastward from Nahum. I think that they can look up in the sky and they can go, well, north is that way. The spindle is working because this one is always pointing north and the other one's pointing at telling us where to go. Because otherwise as well, they might have gone, well, which one are we following? That's a good point because we do learn later that, yeah, you're right, it stops working at some point. And how would they know if it stopped working when they could just they could just think, well, that's the new way to go. That's the direction the Lord's telling me. So I guess if they if one of them is pointing north, they know that now, well, that's not north. It stopped working. Because they would have known what north was already right yeah i mean the if you look at the maps you know there's mountains running um so you know when i was in america everyone knew north east south west because the way that the mountains were running i, I had no idea but they all did. they should teach and they, so they should teach my wife i say we're driving and i say head north and she goes what way's north oh head head <laughs> east up this road what way's east she says just say left or right <laughs> Yeah, so, yeah, that makes perfect sense to me. They knew which way north was, and if the Liahona stopped working, they would know that because suddenly it's not pointing north. Yeah. So, yeah, that makes sense to me. I guess, you know, mm. what you're saying is right. So, the Liahona, it's, it's an interesting thing because, well, even the history of it, we don't know what where it came from before this, but we know that after this, it's passed down from generation to generation, just like the Sword of Laban. And it's something that the witnesses got to see after Joseph right. Smith. And it's something that's always in our church history as this amazing feat, which is an amazing feat. But where did it come from? Did- and, and, and how was it powered? And did Christ actually summon the atoms to join together and to make that? Or was it already made in for something in biblical times and it was reused like how was it powered that's okay a compass can point to north and that's you know i've got a compass here that can point to north off its own steam but what about the other one what powered it to point to the direction it's got to go and turn and also the writing that came up on it like what powered that that's right. I mean, if we were to see something like that now, we'd go, oh, it's just a phone. A, a screen. Phone. I've got a message on my phone. You know, it's just something that's natural to us. But this, just very different. How did the messages get there? Obviously by the power of the Lord, but why? Where did it come from? Yeah, how, is, how does it work? It's just an incredible, incredible thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, totally, totally. It's, it's crazy to think about. And obviously another very special item because if you know, you've just mentioned then about the sword of Laban, they're carrying the sword of Laban and they're carrying the Liahona. And now, like, wherever they go, they've got to make sure these things are kept with them and they're kept safe and they're passed down. They, you know, they're, they're, they're adding more 
things to themselves. I'm, I'm curious, though. An amazing thing, obviously, and it worked for them. But when I think about this, I think about Moses. Now, when Moses left Egypt, when he didn't know the way to go, the Lord sent down a cloud, and Moses followed that cloud, and that cloud showed him the way to go. Right. Why different? You know, why is this different to that? Why didn't the Lord either give Moses a Leahona or give Lehi a cloud to follow? What's the mm. idea behind going, I'll give you this, but I'll give you this? Or is it just interpreted wrong and maybe Moses possibly had a Leahona? I, I don't know. Right. But I've always thought it was a bit strange how one idea was one way, another idea was another way. And I'm just not sure exactly why. Mm, that is really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, some more work to be done. Exactly, exactly. So the Liahona is given to them. They they suddenly know, okay, well, this is the way to go. And they they follow the direction. They go for the space of four days, and then they get to this land which they call Shazza. Shazza? Right? Well, I've always thought it was Shaza, but I don't know why. Shaza? I'm happy to go with either either way. <laughs> either way is fine. Well, I mean, there me. is a... There is a uh, thing at the back of the scriptures that tells you how to pronounce it, so you're probably right. And importantly to notice here is they had to they had to name the place themselves. So why is that why is that important? It's important because they didn't just rock up to a town. They didn't just turn up to a town. They come to a place and decided we're going to stay here, and therefore they gave it a name. They didn't turn up to someone else's town and someone said. And they said, what's this place called? That's oh, called Shazer. They said, this is a great spot that we're going to stop and we're going to name it. And you're right. It is Shazer. It is Shazer. Okay. Let's go with, let's go with Shazer for everyone listening. Now we know. Now we know. <laughs> All right. So then they traveled to Shazer. Like they rested and they used the Liahona to go in the direction of where the food right. was. So they set up camp. They used the Liahona and they followed it to find where the food was. Now, we read that Nephi has this steel bow that he's, he's made that he's got, and it breaks. Yes. Now, he I've learned that is, all through primary. <laughs> his bow breaks, and everyone complains, but everyone's got a bow. So, what is it about his bow? So, I've been looking into you know the steel bow. They didn't have you know great amounts of steel. That they could just turn into bows and things like that. And would and would straight There's, steel be a good bow? Does straight steel have any flex? By the way, isn't steel just like a soft, solid metal? I mean, it'd be hard to hold for sure. Be heavy, definitely heavier than wood. Right. But what I found is that when it talks about steel bows in biblical times, they're actually not talking about full steel. They're actually talking about decorated reinforced bows mostly made out of wood and they call them composite bows right. they use composite them... just meaning made of many many materials exactly so it's mainly made of wood and animal horns right and they glue this all together in you know with the special way that they do but then they add things to it bronze copper steel sort of like material metals as you'd say right. Um, you know, to make it sort of fancy it up a bit. And the way that they would use it, it was more powerful than a normal one. It could shoot, you know, regular arrows three, four hundred meters away. A hundred meters? You know, that's t- it was very effective. Wow. His bow, you know, we've talked about how Nephi, you know, he's 
stops to look at the sort of Laban and how great it is and how well made it is, we know that he's some kind of possibly blacksmith or definitely someone who's handy with tools. So it's, you know, quite probable that he's made this bow himself and he's really decked it out and he's made it just the best one he's got. It's not fully made of steel, but it's just a really beautiful piece. One thing that's interesting to note is because of the temperature and the climate, you know, Palestine, Amman, the Arabian Yemen. Peninsula, you yeah. know, very, very dry. And because of that, these types of bows, they warp and they break in the weather. Right. And so that's what would have happened to him. You know, it, they're all hunting. His is the one that he spent all this time, all this effort to make shoot just the furthest thing catch the things that they don't have to chase but his is the one that broke and i suppose this is probably why they murmured so much they've gone you've got this amazing bow you took so long to do this and now you've gone ahead and broken it so you know? because theirs just wasn't anywhere near as good as his i mean it, i've always thought it a bit strange because there's just like two little verses that are attributed to everyone else's bows being no good and their bows having lost their springs Okay, well they've they're adults, like yeah. But, Stop blaming yeah, someone else. Yeah, but yeah. what you're saying makes sense because you know in, in fine steel, and it's almost like Nephi was the main the main hunter. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And then then he's broken his after they've broken theirs. Gone. Now it's your fault. Yeah, but the you know, main one's like gone. we talked about. But it's like we talked about before. You know, Laman, Lemuel, and everyone that complains against Nephi—they're not going to go. Uh, we're all at fault here. They've gone, who can I blame? Yeah, true. Whose fault is it now? Now we're hungry. Your amazing bow broke. Good This on is you. your fault. We're hungry. Exactly. Yeah. So then sort of Nephi took it upon himself to then go, well, I've got to fix this. I've got to do what I can. So Nephi makes another bow and he makes it out of wood and he gets straight sticks and straight arrows and he goes and he goes off hunting again. So he's gone, all right, fine. Yeah, I don't know if he's taken it upon himself, but he's... he's, he's always the guy that goes i'll fix i'll find it i can find a solution exactly and so he's going well i'll go and make one and the next part here if i if i keep going is a very challenging time for the family now it's not just the brothers that are highly frustrated with nephi it's actually lehi as well verse 25 is so they Nephi makes an arrow. Nephi makes a bow, as you've mentioned. That we see here at the bottom of verse 23. And I said to my father, Whither shall I go to obtain food? And Lehi, in, so in verse 24, and it came to pass that he did inquire. So Lehi inquires of the Lord, for they had humbled themselves be, because of my words. And I did say many things unto them in the energy of my soul. Nephi, Nephi goes back at his, uh, his father and his brothers and tells them that the Lord's going to provide for them, even though they're so frustrated with Nephi breaking his bow and Nephi's bow breaking is just the absolute end of the world. But now, even though Lehi has been frustrated and he's kind of lost sight at the bigger picture, Nephi comes to him and says, well, hey, you're the guy that's got the Leahona. Tell me where to go. And Lehi's then obviously feels a lot of guilt and he's gone. Oh no! I now need to. I now need to talk to God, and I've just had an absolute fit on Nephi for breaking his bow. And so, verse twenty-five, and it came to pass that the voice of the Lord came unto my father, 
and he was truly chastened because of his murmuring against the Lord, insomuch that he was brought down into the depths of sorrow. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm thinking that Lehi here is the patriarch. He's had some incredible visions. He's completed loads of things that the Lord's asked him to do. Miraculous things. He is a human just like us, and he's faltered. For Lehi to be brought down into the depths of sorrow must have been quite a confronting time for him and something he must have just felt absolutely rotten about. Yeah, even for everyone around him, you'd think, you know, if you see Lehi, if you see your father doing that, you could sort of take a step back and go, oh, wow, this this man that nothing ever troubled him, we left everything to, to follow him, and now he's sort of broken down and then repented and just felt horrible for everything he's done up to this point. And it doesn't... Must have been a scary time for it, everyone. And it doesn't get better, right? Because then the Lord says, well, go and have a look at the ball. I think it, it says... Um, where are we? Verse 27. Tremble. Tremble. Whatever was written made him fear and tremble exceedingly. Not just him and also my brethren and the sons of Ishmael and our wives. It's made... Whatever was written on the ball was a big, big problem. And this is, this is where they learn that the ball only works through faith. Because in verse 28, it says, And it came to pass that I, Nephi beheld the pointers which were in the ball, that they did work according to the faith and diligence and heed which we did give them unto. Well, that's right. I mean, I wish it would tell us what it said, but I imagine always in my head that it says something along like what you've said, this ball will not work due to lack of faith. And that's when they've gone, oh That no. was us. We're the ones that had the that, lack that, of faith. Exactly. So they've panicked then and gone, this isn't going to work. What now? What do we do? You know, when we got to get down and pray and ask for forgiveness. But you know, it's a scary time, especially with this new thing that you've got, and you're relying so heavily on it. And then, so then we see that Nephi goes to the top of a mountain. The ball, the ball tells him, by the way, the ball tells him specifically to go to the top of the mountain. And there was wild beasts there, and and so he's able to um, slay them. I'm imagining this is a very humbling experience for, for Lehi. You know, his son his, his becomes the example here. His son never loses the faith. And so his son then goes to the mountain, and his son is the one that, that then comes back and says, right, through the power of the Lord, even though you have been no good, for the power of the Lord, we've still been fed. Here's the wild beast that I've just that I've just caught for us so we're all going to be we're all going to be good for the night so then they pick up their tents and they continue their journey the next day and they're traveling the same course that they've been told to, to travel and they travel the space of many days and then they stop for a space of time when Ishmael died yeah that's right so this is a very interesting point in time of the book of Mormon by the way because it actually mentions a specific place where they go came to pass that Ishmael died and he was buried in a place called Nahom, N-A-H-O-M, Nahom. Shazer, if you recall, is not a town. Shazer is a place that they rock up to and they say, we're going to stay here and we're going to call it Shazer. That's not the same with Nahom. They go to Nahom in the place which was called Nahom. Okay, so where's Nahom gone? And where is it now? What we learn is that if you have a look at old maps, this place called Nahom 
It had a different couple of different spellings, but there is a place called Nahum, and it's in what we would call modern day Yemen. So is this still on the path leading to where they eventually get to on the boat, or did they sort of go off track to get there? Well, Nahum, we learn, is a place, I'm going to very simplify and say it's almost like a a city of the dead. It's a place where Nahum is a place where you would go and bury a person. So whether they've come off the beaten track or, and, and then gone, oh, there's a town here, oh, it's Nahum, that's where we should bury Ishmael. Or whether they were just past it or just before it, they've got they've got Ishmael. They need to bury him, and they and then they know, oh, we're going to take him to Nahum because that's where you take a deceased individual when you're out. When you're and out is there. that place still like a town, like a cemetery town? Uh, it it isn't now so much, but there's plenty of history to suggest it definitely was, and importantly. There's plenty of history that shows that this was a town. And we've talked about this before in episode two, which was about Nephi's name. If, if anyone recalls or if you recall yourself, they back then they didn't have the vowels that we have. So this town is actually called NHM. And over time, letters were added to NHM because we can't say NHM. And obviously when Joseph Smith was translating, he said, which was called Nahum, which is what we've got in our Book of Mormon. And so there's a lot of work been done. And and Warren Aston, who we've talked about a bunch of times, he was particularly diligent in the search for Nahum. And I, I recall, I think he'd got to the point where he found a map or he'd found some solid evidence that Nahum was called Nahum, but it was 500 AD and so that's not long ago enough for this to be accurate I'm gonna say I'm not gonna be quoted on it but I'm gonna say late 90s or very early 2000s a new archaeological site was dug out and there's an altar there and that altar was dated sort of around 700 600 BC so before, so before, time. just before this family would have got there, around about the time that they, so around that era. Wow. And the altar clearly says NHM. It's great to know that, I think, because this this is a, a good reason as to why the Book of Mormon can stack up, because it clearly says here that there's a place called Nahum that they didn't name. And there's great evidence to suggest that, to show that Nahum was a place. And you can go there today, in fact. It's in modern-day Yemen. You could... I mean, I don't know if I could get there. It's pretty remote, but someone could <laughs> if, you, if you wanted to. There's no problem. So a great piece of information there about Nahum and something that really helps us understand that the Book of Mormon really does stack up, particularly because this was... This town, this NHM, was discovered, I'm going to say, at least 160 years after the Book of Mormon was released, right. So it yeah. doesn't. It's it's only a little verse, chapter chapter sixteen, verse thirty four. It's only small. It's just three lines, but it's it's got some significant impact on the weight of the Book of Mormon. Interesting. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. So after this all happens, I mean, it goes a bit downhill for a minute. Ishmael's family they're not happy. They're not happy with Lehi that. You know, everything that's happened. Yes. Their father's dead now. You know, they they murmur, they complain. And it's just, 
Yeah, everyone seems to. Everyone seems to jump on the back of Lehi and Nephi, and they complained against their father, complained against Nephi, and Nephi just stood up to them and said, you know, this isn't the way the thing's supposed to be. You need to repent. And Laman's quite the antagonizer yeah. here, isn't he, as well? Layman. He seems to be the, the one in charge of the people that complain, definitely. Yeah. Okay, so chapter 17... If we get into that, we've got verses 1 to 4 is the traveling to Bountiful. So their family is quite blessed along the journey, but it does take quite a while. So there's lots of raw meat here, which, which it specifically talks about, which were able to go to the women. And in particular, they were healthy. They were very healthy and they, they bore children. And the children were healthy as well. That land between Nahum, and I have spent quite a bit of time looking at where Nahum is and where uh, most likely Bountiful is, which is, uh, we'll come to shortly, which is uh, uh, Kafut, uh, which is which is what, what it's called today. And that is a challenging place to get through. So they were very nourished. They were very strong. And they last eight years in the wilderness. And the wilderness means... The, the place between Nahom to Bountiful. And it's a few thousand kilometers in between. And they're actually there for eight years. So a very, very long time. And so they call the place Bountiful. And they say it's Bountiful because there's loads of fruit, wild honey. It's near the sea. It's just a real, the, the picture painted of Bountiful is just a, a really, really beautiful spot. So I'm going to go on this again, Clive. Where Where is Bountiful? There's a couple of different clues. So in the, in the 90s and in the early 2000s, there was a, a couple of parties that went out and they wanted, they, they were in search, they were in search. They, they walked through the Valley of Lemuel, which we've talked about in a previous episode, but their real, their real focus was to get to Bountiful and to understand where Bountiful was. And so when you're searching for Bountiful, you've got to kind of understand the scriptures a little bit because chapter 17 tells us if we're going to, if you and I are going to go now and look for Bountiful, well, what are we going to look for? Well, there's different criteria. So first of all, it, there has to be, as I've already mentioned, there has to be lots of fruit and lots of honey. It has to be yeah. east of Nahum. So they must have traveled directly east. So that's really important. It must have been quite a fertile land. They talk a lot about that. They talk a lot about what they were able to eat there. So it must have been quite fertile. Obviously, it has to it has to be on the coast as well. So if we're you and I are going to travel there now, we're not going to look for any inland towns. We're going to look for something on the coast. There has yep. to be timber. There has to be fresh water as well. There because they they're able to drink water, and it talks about talks about that here as well. And these descriptions come from chapter 17, but also chapter 18. In chapter 18, when they talk about building the boat, there's timbers. There's not a tree. There's timbers. There's different types of timbers. Nephi is also called up onto a mountain. So there has to be a mountain. There has to be cliffs. Of course, they, Nephi has to make tools. So there has to be the appropriate material to write tools, uh, to make tools. So some there has to be beasts as well there also has to be no one there these are all of the different criteria of what bountiful looks like and so there's this place called kafot k-h-a-r-f-o-t 
This is a, a current place in modern day Oman. And when this team, this Lehigh Foundation, was looking for Bountiful, they actually had loads of different town, loads of different areas that it could have been. And this one here ticked every single box. There's loads of ore, there's flint that they can make, uh, that they could have made fires with. There's fresh water. Um, the team there were able to drink loads of fresh water. Lots of different local fruit. There was a botanist that they took with them. And uh, this lady was able to uh, identify different items and was able to show them the different fruits in the area. So I don't want to harp on about that too much, but we will. We'll, let's put this on our Instagram as well. Uh, hi to Colab underscore podcast, or if you could hi to Colab podcast on Facebook. I'll put a bit of this information on here because it is really quite interesting. Like the Valley of Lemuel, there is a great candidate for uh, for Bountiful. So they're in they're in um, this area now that they call Bountiful, and there's a little bit that they have to do. Um, there's uh, verse 13 and I will also be your light in the wilderness and I will prepare the way before you if it so be that you shall keep my commandments uh, wherefore inasmuch as ye shall keep, keep my commandments ye shall be led towards the promised land that ye shall know that it is by me that ye are led so they're taught that they're at Bountiful which is a beautiful spot but they're taught at Bountiful to prepare to actually get to the promised land, which is where they're ultimately that they need to go. And and Bountiful is a resource full. It's a full of resources that help them get stay there, stay nice and nourished, stay nice and healthy, and prepare themselves for such a long voyage. I did wonder in the study of this one, a question came to my mind, which is, I wonder if they were unimpressed because the place was so good and that Nephi was like, hey, help us build this boat because we're going. And they're thinking, actually, this place is perfect. We should just stay here. We've finally got it good. Yeah. We've had a Finally, after all this time. Yeah, we've had a killer eight years. And don't you think we should just like stay here now? Or was the idea of a boat so preposterous to them, like, I don't want to get in the ocean, like, that's crazy. I do think that they would have had experiences with vessels. In in Israel, there's a port there, the old Jaffa port, which is like 4,000 years old. So people have been trading in and out of Israel by the ocean for thousands of years. So it wouldn't be... I think with what I think Lehi's occupation would have been, they would have been used to vessels and the idea of things coming from the ocean. So I wonder why their frustration was was so high. What I think is interesting is, so every time Laman and Lemuel and the the other brethren, you know, they're complaining, Nephi gives this speech, tells them all these things. But this time the Lord's gone, well, I need you to build a boat. So they need more than just a speech. I need you to touch them, shock them so they understand this power. Because what's going to happen now, we need everybody on We don't board. have time for this. Because there's a lot to do. So in chapter 18, the first thing that Nephi talks about is his, he says that they've got to build a ship. 
and its work is done out of timbers of curious craftsmanship. Right. So this isn't just a regular ship. And then he says that we did not work with the timbers after the manner which was learned by men. Neither did I build the ship after the manner of men. And like you said, ships have been around for a long time. They found cave drawings of old ships. They traded with ships back in those days. This is a different type of ship. This is a ship that no one has ever seen before. This is the type of ship that he has been asked to build. And it's a type that no one has ever seen before. So it would have looked very strange. It would have. So Nifo, yeah, exactly. Nifo was given a new way of not only building a ship, but it's a new type of ship. And this ship, so back then, one of the biggest trades they had was from India to Egypt. That's a huge Spices and stuff, I'd imagine. Yeah, I'd, I'd say so. But this, so this ship needed to travel from there all the way to the south side of the Americas. But not only did it have to travel that far, it had to withstand the beatings that it would take from later on, we'll find out that when they were wicked on the ship, you know, those storms and all these other things. So it not only does it have to withstand the journey, but it has to also withstand anything that's going to hit it. And that's why this ship needs to be not like any other ship. There's a man that he was really curious about this a long time right. ago. Um, there's, a, there's an interesting book about him, actually, if anyone wants to give it a read. It's called Devere Baker. Okay. So this man's Devere Baker. He's from Utah. And uh, there's a book by Warren Aston, who we've mentioned a few times. And it's called Devere Baker and His Ocean Rafts. He's in, he was born in Utah. He lived there most of his life, which is a landlocked state. So it's interesting for him to really be into ships. But he had always wanted to build the type of ship that Nephi and his brothers built. So he spent a lot of time, a lot of money, all of his life savings, basically, to move out to California to try and build a ship. And after two failed attempts, not by his hand, you know, one time... um, Somebody let the ship out too early and he, he, he didn't quite get to it and it just wandered off into the ocean. No. You know, there's some other reasons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. After all that time spent building. But the third time, he his it was successful. So then he went, okay, I'm going to use that success and I'm going to build this fourth ship. Right. And this ship, it was amazing. So it was basically the cabin was made of plyboard. And then the bottom of it was a raft. So logs strapped together in a raft style. And he managed to sail on that for 69 days. And he traveled from California to Maui in Hawaii. And now this ship, that's only 3,400 kilometers. I mean, I say only, but it's 3,400 kilometers where Lehi and his family had to travel 27 thousand kilometers do we do so it is just on that though clive do you think we know the kind of direction that we that that they went in because if i i think did they travel east and just go just basically hit that west coast of america because they would have had to well right down below the horn of africa right then down below southern america up past chile exactly yeah yeah we think that's probably the direction they went but it's not only that it when they were wicked, the ship was driven back for the space for three days, they say. Yes. So not only did they have to travel that journey, but because of the wickedness when they were on the boat, they were pushed back even further. So yeah, it's a long journey, but also it took them longer than it should. 
So it's interesting. There's also other people that have attempted these types of ships. And um, there was one man that did a similar idea of, of Devere Baker, um, where he actually built a garden on the back. Right. And he grew crops on the back of his boat. What? So, yeah. So this idea that Nephi built a ship, it wasn't just a simple wind-powered ship with a sail and an oar. It would have been something that the Lord's gone, you need a ship that's going to withstand everything, but you also need to be on it for a long time. And so I'm going to show you not only the way to build a ship like this, but it, what this type of ship is going to look yeah, like. And, and what it can actually do. Exactly. So he's shown the new world of, you know, the things that he's going to see, great things that are going to come to pass. But then he's also shown, you know, this is how you build it. And from time to time, he goes back up to the Lord and he's shown, you know, other things, other important things. It's just, it's a great, great story. You know, we know that the ship was most likely powered by wind because you know the winds picked up and moved it around when it got rough yep. and the Lehona guided the direction so it must have been powered also by them is in they decide which direction the ship's going to yeah, go they, because the Lehona worked while they were on there it wasn't just being dragged along by dolphins yeah right? well i imagine yeah, good point big whale just saddle up yeah. I imagine that they must have been taught how to use said boat because you exactly. can put the you can put the sail up but depending on what what direction you put the sail up it can it can help the boat turn different ways. So I imagine part of that was training that when you're on the open ocean here's what you're going to do. Yeah, exactly. And they took fruits and meats and honey and all these other things, because as soon as they landed, they started to farm. Yeah, before I get into that, the actual landing part, they were on there for, you know, a few days. And then the brethren or the, the sons and daughters of Ishmael, as long, uh, along with Laman and Lemuel, they began to get a bit rude, a bit cocky. They started to dance and sing and, you know, it just says they were exceedingly rude. So Nephi was fearful and saying, you know, you can't do this. You know, remember what the Lord's done for yeah. us. And they bound him on the ship. And keep in mind that at this stage, he's had two younger brothers. Jacob and Joseph had been born. And he has children at this stage as well. So his wife's given birth to children. Yeah, it would have been a horrific scene. Definitely horrific scene, especially due to the fact that three days there was this great storm... And it wasn't until the fourth day that ne that they've gone. Actually, this maybe Nephi is right. This is the Lord that's doing this, and they let Nephi go. And he says that his hands and his feet were swollen and sore. I mean, they would be because of, after four days of being rocked around a ship and, and being, being tied, tied up. up, just being completely helpless, so frustrated, trying to get out. And it was he would have been quite physically harmed. Oh, most definitely, definitely. But, I mean, the, the thing that he does straight away is he goes down and he prays to God, and he praises God. And Lehi gets really angry at this stage, and he starts to tell everyone. Well, I mean, I'm sure he would have been trying to tell them off as much as possible. But at this stage, Lehi, you know, he goes to them, and he starts telling them off, and they start to threaten Lehi. They threatened anyone who would speak for Nephi. So... They let Nephi go, but they still weren't good people. But because of the faith of Nephi and everyone else that were good, you know, the Lord calmed the oceans and they were able to go. So then it was, you know, another 
long period of time before they actually made it to dry land. They made it to the promised land and immediately they they began to till the earth and to plant seeds and um, farm, basically. That's right, and it's, it's, Something it's they... interesting that they get the seeds from the Valley of Lemuel. In the Valley of Lemuel, remember, they gather seeds, they're gathering and gathering, and so these are the seeds that they're planting on the promised land. So they That's right, and honey, they had honey with them, which they must have got, taken some bees, which the Jaredites specifically mentioned that they took bees over as right. well for honey. So, you know, it must have just been a... Eventually, just a lot of bees, and, and and they were blessed in abundance. It's 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 truly miraculous occasion, right? From where we've come from, from first Nephi in the introduction, we were introduced to Lehi. Then then we we leave and we go to we go to the borders. Oh, actually, go back at the plates. Go back and get Ishmael, Valley of Lemuel, Shazar, Nahum, Bountiful, and now finally at the end of chapter eighteen. We are at the promised land and it's a beautiful place. There's so many animals there. There's there's gold, there's silver, there's ore. It's everything that they need it to be. Exactly. And this is 10 plus years, you know, totally. from when Lehi first has this vision that he has to take his family and leave. But yeah, they, they get there. Yeah, they see animals like cows, ox, donkeys, horses, goats, wild goats. A lot of the times... When people are trying to disprove the Book of Mormon, this is something they'll bring up. And they'll say, well, there's no wild horses in America. There's no wild cows or ox. But there actually have been discoveries. There have been discoveries that uh, species of horses, donkeys, and elephants have even been found over in North America. Dating earlier than the Book of Mormon. We know, and I mean, we know anyway because we believe the Book of Mormon, but we know that these things were around at those times. So, I mean, from 590 BC to now, a lot of things has changed anyway. But we know at those times, you know, the things that Joseph Smith had interpreted, it wasn't him just making it up going, oh, wouldn't it be good if there was horses on there and goats? But these are things that they actually found. And like I said, they found ore, they found gold, they found silver, they found copper, things that they can use to make weapons and houses things that they can use to basically grow their village, create a village, grow it and, and create cities out of, you know, it was, it was basically the promised land. This is exactly what they're there for. And this is what they've been given. They've been and incredible. immediately they get to work, right? Immediately Nephi's commanded that he needs to make some plates. Exactly. So Nephi does make plates in uh, chapter 19. He explains that, he uses the ore to make plates, and then he explains that everything that he's written, it's from memory. So, because he didn't have the plates with him at the time to write, he had the brass plates that had the books of Moses yep. on them, but he didn't have plates that he was recording. So he explains that I got the, you know, I made these plates out of ore, and I'm writing down the things that I remember from you know the, the last 10 years this goes on for another 10 years you know it seems to be a great place everyone's happy for a period of time and he has really and, amazing experiences in chapter 19 right he sees an angel and he's taught he's taught uh, things that are going to happen in the future yep that's right yeah it talks about jesus christ it, it, what's interesting is he actually talks about the book of xenoch which we don't have the book of xenoch it's not a book that's in the bible whatsoever right but he's known about it so 
this is described, and if you look at the footnotes here, it says that it is lost scriptures. Mm. Fascinating that, you know, he mentions this book, but it's a lost book, as there are many lost books through the, the ages, but he has that book. And I'm curious to know what that book's all about because he does reference it. You know, after uh, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, you know, and an angel came to the man into the hands of the wicked men to be lifted up according to the words of Zena. And Nephi is taught as well, just skipping along, Nephi is taught about the crucifixion. And I really like the wording here. So if you skip to, we're on chapter 19, verse 13. And as far as, as, and as for those who are at Jerusalem, so he's given them an update about Jerusalem. Saith the prophet, they will be scourged by all people because they crucified the God of Israel and turned their hearts aside, rejecting signs and wonders and the power and glory of the God of Israel. It's like as soon as he lands, there's like a tense ball of just, okay, now you're here, bang, here's what you need to do. Here's loads of information. Here's what's going to happen in the future. You now need to prepare yourself for what's, for Nephi, you need to prepare yourself for what's coming now. You need to learn all these things. And then towards the end of 19, Nephi then gets into gear. So he goes and teaches his brethren about what's going on. He talks about the plates. And then he starts reading himself. 23, I did read many things unto them which were written in the books of Moses, but that I might more fully persuade them to believe in the Lord their Redeemer. I did read unto them that which was written by the prophet Isaiah, for I did liken all scriptures unto us, so that they might be for our profit and learning. Well, I think, Clive, we've been talking for quite a while. I really think that that's all we've got time for, to be honest, unless you had anything else that you really wanted us to go through. Uh, no, I think we've covered quite a lot. I mean, and we're going to cover a lot as time goes on. Um, if you don't mind, though, I do have a quote I'd like to okay, read. Okay, go for it. For anyone who's on our social media pages, we've posted this really great talk called Reflections of Sammy Hanna, as recorded by Russell M. Nelson. Definitely take a look at it because it, it's incredible. It talks about the way that the Book of Mormon is written and how it compares to languages. But I just want to read here. This says, As Latter-day Saints, we are aware of the Semitic origin of the Book of Mormon. The fact that the Arabic scholar such as this sees a beautiful internal consistency in the Prophet Joseph Smith's translation of the book is of great interest. The Prophet Joseph did not merely render an interpretation, but a word-of-word word translation from the Egyptian type of hieroglyphic into English language. Brother Hannah said the Book of Mormon simply flowed back into the Arabic language. Okay, well, thanks for that. Thanks, everyone, for listening today. We will be back next week for Second Nephi chapter 1 and Second Nephi chapter 2, just two verses in the next next week so we'll cover that and we're really enjoying being along this um study path um with you and and for us as well thanks for thanks for listening